Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. entrepreneurs out there. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting from the greater Chicago Milwaukee area. I'm your host Doris Nagel and each week I host guests from all facets of entrepreneurship. I've counseled many startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice over the past 30 years but I've also started or helped start at least nine different businesses candidly with varying degrees of success. I've seen a lot of mistakes over the years, and I myself have made plenty of them along the way. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions, and suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, you've got an issue or a challenge, I'll either answer it or do my best to find someone to answer it. If you want to be a guest or you just have a great resource you'd like to share, email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Joining me by phone is Steve Garko. He's the president at a business he calls Foresight Business Consulting. It's a Chicago-based strategy and marketing firm. Steve says he's obsessed with making a difference in the way companies form strategic decisions. And he believes any company can significantly improve performance by implementing a defined strategic decision process. Now, Steve started as a market researcher and then over the years eventually became vice president global marketing for a very large Fortune 300 company. And there he became intimately involved with strategy formation. He also spent afterwards stints as senior manager at two different startups. And at that point, he launched his own consulting company. Steve says he was surprised that so many companies struggled with developing and implementing successful business strategies. And this stimulated Steve to create his own proprietary process to help companies make better strategic decisions. And he calls it the Lean Strategic Decision Model. He knows a few things about this. He's the author of two books on the subject, including the most recent Achieving International Bestseller Status, titled Stratification, How Strategic Decision Processes Will Create Sustainable Competitive Advantage. He's gone on to present the model in seminars, use the approach successfully with clients, and has appeared on numerous radio and TV broadcasts and is also a frequent speaker on the topic of strategic decision-making. Steve earned his BS in medical technology from Michigan State University, also has a master's degree in hospital management from The Ohio State University. He and his wife, Marie, have three grown children. So with that introduction, Steve, welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Doris, for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. You know, because strategy is one of those topics that 
frankly is I would call it the lifeblood really of of most companies. I mean, do a bad job with strategy and your company may completely fail. Do a great oh. job and you might be wildly successful. So it's pretty huge, I think. Oh, absolutely. And and there are a number of cases that kind of prove the point you just set. And and hopefully throughout the remainder of this conversation, I can give you some examples of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the stories, I think, I think people will really relate to it, you know, because strategy is one of those topics that's you know, it's one of those terms people use a lot, but I, I'm not always sure people even use the term the same way. And so I think to start off, talk a little bit about what exactly is strategy and, and what isn't it? Well, I think of strategy as a planned set of structured actions that are designed to leverage a company's strengths into a better business outcome. Now, this outcome could be financial growth. Or it could be the mitigation of some negative environmental impact. But once developed, the strategy serves as a map or a guide for achieving the company's vision. Now, strategy is important because it provides a framework for decision making. It also prioritizes and aligns operational activity, and it defines accountability for results. But strategy is not strategic planning. Corporations use the strategic planning process to broadly describe the environment, the customer, and the competition, and they use it to justify existing sales and marketing and development programs, expecting that they will drive marketplace success. And here's the problem. The strategic planning process for many companies devolves into a business unit resource allocation exercise for the coming year. So what happens is, is that in the strategic planning process, it transforms from a decision driving effort into a negotiation where resource requests are met in exchange for revenue growth commitments, which I think is really not strategy at all. It's, it's, it's more gamesmanship. So when you look, compare that then to strategy, strategy is the result of a focused analysis where you're comparing alternatives to address one issue rather than the broad approach that strategic planning does. Very interesting. And I'm just thinking as you were talking, thinking about companies I've worked for and the clients that I've worked with and the budgetary allocation in exchange for revenue targets is it's so on point. That is how so many companies operate. I just found it really frustrating because, you know, when you're a senior leader of one of these business units, you could be spending months and what you're doing is you're putting together great big fancy slides talking about this, that and the other thing. And then what you're doing is you're trying to figure out ways to manage the data, not lie, but manage the data so that it looks like all the programs that you've had in place for the last couple of years are doing the right things. And so you can justify the investment that the CEO is going to give you. I, I'm sorry. It is such a game. I couldn't stand it. All right. So that's what happens in a lot of companies. What happens if you don't have a good strategy and you spend too much time doing the kind of gamesmanship that you're talking about? Well, basically, when companies don't have a good strategy, they either dwindle, they'll lose significant market share, 
or they might even die. So as an example, think of typewriter companies, okay? The Royal Typewriter, they're dead. I'm not saying the management of the Royal Typewriter Company was bad, but they were killed by word processing, right? Mm -hmm. So what Royal failed to do was they failed to look at the market and understand how technology was gonna change how people typed their reports or whatever. So in, in my mind, this would have been a very difficult thing for the company executives to do. But what they needed to do is to look at the market and identify, oh, we're going to have to get some software development programmers here because people are going to start doing this on these things called computers. How are we going to make sure we stay alive? Well, we got to develop a computer way for people to type. Well, they didn't do that. But keep in mind, that wasn't their competency, but that's an example of not having the right strategy. And then the other one would be J&J. J&J is Johnson & Johnson, right? Yes, yes. Okay, Johnson & Johnson lost significant market share in in the stent market. They basically had 90% market share. And because they didn't focus on what the next things they should be doing for their strategy, they dropped to 9%, 90 to 9% in three months. In three months? Three months. So, okay, now that's an extreme case, obviously, but it, it serves the point that basically if you don't do a good job on your strategy, you're not talking about losing one or 2% market share or not increasing your revenue by one or 2%, you can lose a lot or all. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You can read all kinds of business articles and they say things like, well, you know, look at the number of businesses that have become obsolete, you know, horse and buggies and typewriters and home movie rentals. And people act like, oh, well, that's just something that happens. Businesses become obsolete. But I think if I understand the point you're making, it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. If you're watching the market, if you're preparing your strategy, you have the opportunity, most of these businesses, to pivot. Now, it might not be easy. It might be quite difficult. It might be expensive. You still might fail. But that these businesses, almost certainly each of them, had a point where they could have pivoted and changed their strategy to at least have a fighting chance. Is that that fair? Yes. But there's a little bit more to that, too. Now, I'm going to read you a quote by someone who I think is a fantastic strategy author. His name's Sidney Finkelstein. And to me, this is the crux of the problem. Dr. Finkelstein says this. He says, executives fail, and think in parentheses with strategy, because they create and live in organizations where mistaken pictures of reality take hold. Delusional policies and attitudes protect that skewed reality from careful scrutiny. And organizational procedures designed to manage information risk and people break down. So why do I say that that's relevant, okay? Because what happens is most companies have the facts right in front of them that their market is changing. But because they have a mistaken picture of reality, and what do I mean by that? 
the typewriter company will look at, oh, we're processing this coming. Well, guess what? They'll say, oh, but we've, we've had great sales this year. We've got a great budget next year. It's not going to really take hold. Okay, that is a delusional picture of reality, you know, because they're not looking at it from the customer perspective. They're looking at it from their delusional policies and attitudes. They're just they're ignoring the facts. And the other thing is what, what Dr. Finkelstein says, he says the, the procedures that you set up to collect these things on how the environment is changing, they break down. So maybe what happens is, is that you've got some junior person assigned to look at the market and then present the report up the ladder. Well, that junior person might actually understand what's going on better. But what will happen is the, the organizational leaders will go, oh, that can't happen. So I guess what I'm saying is, well, horses and buggies stopped because a new technology came in to replace it. And the problem is, is that the companies that were making buggies did not believe that their buggies were going to get replaced by something called an automobile. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I had a guest on last week talking about leadership, which is like strategy is another one of those really important topics and also one that businesses often don't do a very good job with. But, you know, we were talking about the implicit biases and how they creep into collective decision-making, individual as well as collective decision-making. And it seems to me maybe what you're talking about, I'm not sure which which implicit bias it would be, confirmation bias or one of those, but it almost seems like you're talking about that where there's this built-in pride in a company among the leadership of what's been accomplished and even among the employee base. And so it becomes very, very difficult to think that this product that's been so wonderful and so successful and that you're so good at making that the market has suddenly shifted and maybe you're, you know, a slice of used bread today and you don't even know it because you don't want to see it. And anybody who tries to challenge that within the organization often is viewed as a troublemaker and gets shut down, right? I'm laughing because been there, done that. Okay, uh, in my uh, last position at the big company, I was one of the first people to decide that our product was not going to be able to make it in the market. And I was kind of like the lone tree blowing in the wind. I actually went, <laughs> I actually went out and I identified a replacement product from a vendor. And so what I was trying to do is I was trying to get us in a position to negotiate an agreement so we could bring this product in while the other one was going to fail. But nobody else was ready to give up on our product. And so the engineering team begrudgingly started to look at it and they'd find all the problems with the vendor product. And quite honestly, they were nothing compared to the problems with our product, you know. But I had worked out a deal where we could get access to the product for about a million bucks. It became too frustrating. I parted with the company. And it turns out three years later, I think, either two or three years later, the company I left actually secured the vendor that I had selected 
and they paid tens of millions of dollars for the right to distribute that product. Uh, so, wow. okay, so I had done all the work. I was just uh, a little bit too early and suffered the consequences. You know? Well, you know, I think it's a very difficult challenge for a lot of businesses to know when to pivot and when to just put your head down and keep working. Yeah, it is. And, and obviously, if you don't have a good strategy process, trying to make an educated decision about that is is difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how, how do you know if you have a good strategy or not or if you need to rethink things? Well, from my perspective, if you are having business success, it probably means you've got a good strategy. And first of all, if that's happening, congratulations. But what I would say is, that's not the time to rest on your laurels. You may not need help from me because that probably means you're doing a good job with strategy formation. But when times are good, it makes sense to set up a regular environmental monitoring activity. This means you monitor what's going on with your competition, your customers, you know, new technologies coming in and trying to decide how that could impact your business. And then once you identify something that could impact your business, you should assign your strategy group to identify the best way to deal with that positively. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is that if you're in this state, you should probably set up a regular strategy review to make sure that your strategy stays relevant. Yeah, I think the point you pretty clearly made is that a great strategy today doesn't assure a great strategy tomorrow. So Right, right. It's got to be a dynamic process, I think. Especially because it's a truism, everybody says it, but it really is true that things are changing very rapidly in the business world. So you have to be always looking over your shoulder, it seems to me, and trying as much as possible to stay nimble. Absolutely. Why do you think so many businesses get strategy wrong and don't seem to focus on strategy? I'm curious about the common threads that you've seen over the years? Well, I I think the problem is, is there's a tendency in today's business circles to value decisions that drive short-term financial performance over long-term strategy. Any executive will tell you that the quickest way to fail is to consistently miss quarterly financial expectations. Senior executives are judged on quarterly results, not strategic decisions, which have a long-term payoff. So, I believe that more emphasis needs to be placed on strategy activity because strategic decisions can have a huge financial impact on the long-term financial performance of the company. For example, think of the success of companies like Facebook or Amazon. The way I look at it is, is that while their competitors were focusing on ways to improve profitability by one or 2% or by grabbing an extra 5% market share, These companies were identifying ways to completely change market dynamics. And that's a strategic thing you're doing. So instead of focusing on operational excellence, they were driving decisions that expanded their revenues by orders of magnitude by taking a strategic approach to their business. Interesting. It's reminding me, um, I think I told you I got your book and... uh, in there, there's a cartoon that you just reminded me of, of 
somebody with their binoculars looking out into the distance and what they're ignoring is the alligator that's about to, about right. to take their legs off. Yep. In the book, though, I think there are a ton of strategy books that say, oh, here's what I think about strategy and what it means for companies and all that. I really only dedicate like one chapter to that. What the balance of the book is, is it's talking about the process because what I think business people need is a how to improve things, not more discussion on, you know, some airy fairy strategic concept. So that's what I thought was lacking was an ability to find a way to make my company better in doing strategy. And that's what the book's about. Well, we're definitely going to spend some more time talking about the book. I think you probably have an example or two of bad strategies or non-strategies or maybe some statistics that show the importance of strategy and of spending some time focusing on it. Yeah, sure. And first, let's talk about a couple of the statistics I've run across. One of the biggest problems with companies facing strategy issues is most executives think they can develop strategy on the fly. Now, the proof of that is a PricewaterhouseCoopers survey that showed that less than 20% of companies use a process to set their strategy. And this is another statistic I find amazing. 60% of the respondents say they set strategy either by pursuing a broad portfolio of strategic options and spreading the risk, or they choose an attractive market to enter and they decide that they will figure out how to succeed in it as they move in. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so the former approach obviously is a problem because companies have limited resources. And by trying to do too many things, most of these strategic options are not done well. Right. And the latter is is that, I'm sorry, you just can't be profitable when you're trying to learn how to run a business that you've never been in. It's just too hard. So th- those are real problems. And, and what I would say is the best way to develop a viable strategy is to follow a process for strategy formation, like I always abbreviate my process and call it LSDM. Lean strategic decision-making, right? Right. Now, you asked, okay, what are, what's an example of a bad strategy? Well, one that probably everybody knows is Blockbuster. And Blockbuster failed to recognize how the internet could make their video rental business irrelevant. Now, I, I don't actually know how Blockbuster failed to see, see that. But I can go into a little bit more detail on another big one, which was Motorola failed to identify that the digital cell phone would replace Motorola's analog technology in the market. That was another big one. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's especially relevant, I think, because we're both in the Chicago area. I think people would remember Motorola as being just an absolute giant. And although they're not a small company, they've definitely slipped a lot in terms of their place in and size yeah. in the market. So what happened? What's the backstory sure. there? Now, now, basically, I haven't done the interviews for this, but Dr. Finkelstein interviewed a lot of people. So we've got a pretty good understanding of how this happened. So to, for background, 
1983, it introduced the first cell phones, which, as you recall, were really bulky and expensive analog devices. By 1988, Motorola had established a dominant position. By 1990, Motorola controlled 45% of the world's cell phone market and annually grew sales by over 20%. And this continued through 1995. By 1995, it had captured 60% market share. But an alternative technology was introduced, which we all know, digital mobile. Now, digital mobile had several advantages. Customers experienced less interference, so phone discussions were sharper and there were fewer lost connections. And carriers saw benefits too. Digital signals permitted carriers to handle 10 times more traffic than analog signals using the same infrastructure. Now, despite the fact that the technology had these advantages, Motorola was slow to respond. And by the time it finally introduced a digital cell phone in 1997, Motorola's market share had dropped to 34%. Eventually, the company was forced to lay off 20,000 workers, and that was in the middle of 1998. In essence, what ended up happening, in Motorola's case, several years prior to the digital cell phone dilemma, the firm was faced with a decision for microchip manufacturing. It could choose to produce chips for the Apple or for the PC operating system. And Motorola chose to produce chips for Apple. So when the market moved to PC, Motorola's large investment was wasted. Now, why is this relevant for cell phones? (laughs) Well, basically, Motorola was afraid of making that same decision. Digital cell phone technology could happen on different digital frequencies. And Motorola did not know which of these digital frequencies it should go with. So rather than make a decision and moving ahead, they decided to sit back and wait and see which of these digital frequencies, I I don't know, frequency might be the wrong term, but they decided to sit back and wait and see which of these frequencies would win, then they could jump in. So basically, The fact that they had made a bad decision before impacted their ability to make a future decision. So Mm -hmm. they they really. Another form of bias, right? You know, Yeah. that the the future is going to be like the past. Right. Now, and then second of all, Motorola's marketing department performed extensive customer research, and they found that customers wanted smaller and lighter cell phones. And that was the promise of digital. But the, the, the analog was the one that at the time could give smaller and lighter cell phones. So the less developed digital technology would force the company to launch a larger phone. So you've got, if we move into digital, we're gonna get our customers all mad because they have to go back to bigger phones. And the other thing that was happening is obviously since digital was new, coverage for it was limited. So the company felt that because of those two things going on, they would be taking a step back if they went into digital. Now, here's the interesting thing. Despite all these digital barriers, they were contradicted by Motorola's finance department data because Motorola still owned some key digital cell phone patents. And the fledgling digital technology companies were required to pay a royalty for all the phones sold. So as digital use expanded, there was a dramatic increase in royalties being paid to Motorola. 
So, well, so they had advanced intelligence that there were companies out there. Right, right. Making moves in that space. And, and so when you look at it, it's not that the people at Motorola were stupid. What ended up happening is they ran into a very complex set of decisions. And you, you know what happens in companies. If you put a group of people together and you throw this mishmash of things together and you have no way to sit down and force them to look at things in, in a defined process, they're going to be left to making intuitive decisions and, and you're going to get into arguing and you got opinions and all that. So from my perspective, they were unable to make a decision. They, they made a decision by not making a decision, and that's what caused them. So from a strategy standpoint, they were moved to inaction. So that's what I'm saying when it comes to strategy formation. It's complex, and you can't do it by the seat of your pants. Well, I'm going to ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second, Steve. We need to take a quick break for station identification and a word from our few of our sponsors, but we'll be right back. I'm Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We are chatting today with Steve Garkow from Foresight Business Consulting, and he's joined the show this week to talk about something that's essential to every single business, and that is strategy. So, Steve, before the break, we were talking about some examples of strategy and non-strategy and the consequences and some examples of that. We talked, I think, a little bit about why businesses don't focus enough on strategy. I'm curious, though, switching gears a little bit to talk about how you became so passionate about strategy. It's pretty clear in listening to you talk that that you are terribly passionate about it. And what about this topic has made you so passionate about it? Well, you know, you've heard the phrase, good decisions come from experience and experience comes from bad decisions. Well, that's probably the best describes how I developed a passion for strategy. When I was leading a strategy project, my team was failing miserably. We weren't coming to grips with things. And of course, my career's on the line. This is something that's important to the company and we're getting absolutely nowhere. So I spent a little bit of time trying to identify what's going on. And as a result of that, I developed an approach and I presented it to the team I was working with. And they agreed that they would adhere to this approach. And when we implemented the approach, we were able to successfully complete our strategy and then present a new strategy to the company. So that was my first experience in trying to change the way companies form strategies. And from this, I just started to look into the literature. And I found that most companies have strategy formation problems. For instance, once again, a PricewaterhouseCoopers survey, they conducted a survey of 2,800 senior executives, and they found that less than half of these executives felt their strategy would lead to company success. Less than half. Wow. <laughs> okay. Then I found a McKinsey study of over 2,400 executives, and they found that only 150 of the respondents, not 7%, 
of these executives could demonstrate that they were effective in forming business strategy. And by that, it, they had some metrics that showed that what they picked as a strategy actually led to revenue growth and all that. So 7% could show that the strategy they implemented worked. So that's two large surveys showing that strategy formation is performed poorly. Now, since I had developed this process that helped me make better strategy decisions, I decided I could do something about improving these statistics. So I, I'm still reeling from those statistics. And that's astoundingly bad when you consider how important the, a good strategy is and implementing a good strategy is to business success. And I, how you can't implement a good strategy unless you have a good strategy. So well, that's, and, uh, that's remarkable. Right. And then another study showed that 50% of corporate strategies fail. Okay. So that's not quite the McKenzie thing. Okay. But I actually found that 50% data point first. And when you look at it, that's the same probability of getting your strategy correct as if you flipped a coin. So if that's the case, maybe we should all save ourselves time and trouble and resources of developing a strategy. Look at our two strategies that we might do, flip a coin and go. Because you're gonna, what this says is, is that if you're like most companies, you have just as good of a chance of doing the right thing by flipping a coin is by going through all that time and trouble. So, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's astounding. It reminds yeah. me of the analogy of stock investors and people saying that getting a chimpanzee to point out stocks was as effective as, as most <laughs> brokers. I guess you could you know, hire your corporate chimp and have, have, have them pick one of the strategies. Mm. But you not only have been passionate about this, but you you've written a book you've actually written two books but you've you've written a book focused on strategy and the process you developed i mean that's a that's a lot of work and um, yeah. you know what, a, what led you to, to go that route you know i told you i developed this process well i didn't do anything with the process for 10 years and then i was volunteering my time mentoring for small businesses in chicago and time after time, I would see how they would have no clue how to implement a strategy. And a typical strategy that they would have is they'd have a technology and they'd have like three different markets that they could use it for. And these people couldn't figure out how to pick the best market. The owner or the technology guy would just say, hey, this I like this one. Why don't we do this one? You know? no business decisions involved and so i what i decided to do was i brought out my old process and i um i decided i would teach a class to these folks to teach them how to do it and they all liked it and all that but you know i, I did that a couple of times and the thought was well if i do that then maybe somebody will come to me and they'll say hey will you help me implement this but startups don't have money so nobody ever did that and <laughs> So uh, another couple of years passed. And over that time, that's when I really started to do a lot more research, organizational behavior research, just to check things out. And I sat down and I had coffee with a friend of mine. And I'm starting to tell him about all, all this stuff about strategy, about how poorly it performed and how my little process worked for them. And he goes, well, you should write a book. And I thought about it 
till about the end of the coffee meeting and I go, you know what, you're probably right. So it was just uh, kind of, I never would have written the book if I hadn't had coffee with that one guy. I, for one, I'm glad you did. It is very articulate and it is very well thought out. If you buy the book or read it on Kindle or get it at the library, it is not a book that you can just kind of breeze through with a few little nuggets and read at a one sitting while you're waiting for an airplane. It is a very dense book. It is a book that, although I say dense, it's easy to understand, but it does require you to really think through the hypotheticals that you posit for people to show them how to use the model. And so it, it takes some real brain power. And I would encourage people to, to take a look at it because I think you walk people through this. And it's not one of those teaser books where you tell people, oh, you know, if you hire me, then I'll show you really how this stuff works. You, you take people through the process. And if they're brave enough and disciplined enough, I think you give them a very clear roadmap of how to make better decisions. In the book. That, that's the exact objective of the book. I, I wanted to put something together that if people went through the book, they would know enough to be able to implement a defined process and do better decisions. And the structure of the book is, you know, first of all, I talk about why there's a problem. But probably the key thing that happens is right early on in the book, I go through a case study. It's a fictional mm -hmm. case study. But what I wanted the reader to do is I wanted them to see how a fictional company could implement the process and what they would have to do. Mm -hmm. then, then what happens is I talk a little bit about some of the myths of strategy formation. But then really what I, I do is I go in to talk about what are the professors and experts say? Now, I, I know some people say, oh, academia, they, they really don't know how business works. But you know what? Sometimes they know better than we do, and we're just too um, arrogant to think that what they're finding really impacts us. And so what I've done is I've thrown some of the more relevant things about strategy and strategy formation. I then go in, I talk very briefly, here are some of the key things, step by step, what you do. And then I finish up the book really by going into details of the nuances of what you have to watch out for. So the thought was, give them an example so you can see what's happening, teach the basics, and then when they've got the basics down, then learn the nuances, and hopefully by doing that, they then have enough to implement the process themselves. It's a very detailed book, and, and I found it absolutely fascinating. I'm curious, though, why you titled the book Stratification. Not strategy, but stratification. Yeah, um, stratification, the definition of that is dividing or arranging things into a hierarchical order that you can make decisions on. And really, that's the nature of strategy. And what I mean by that is that when you're forming strategy, you're going to have a number of different strategic options from which to choose. I mean, or what I should say is it's the company's job to come up with a number of ways that you can overcome your strategy issue. If you're just saying, oh, this is the way you're going to go, well, you know what? That's when you're getting into this whole delusional thing that we talked about in the previous half hour, right? So what you need to do is you need to come up with options. So 
stratification really is about helping you stratify them or ordering them and selecting the best strategy for the company. Interesting. Well, so we've kind of talked around the lean strategic decision-making model that you've created. Talk about what this model is. I mean, exactly what is it? And how did you come up with the name? And and why is it lean anyway? Well, okay. So LSDM is really a simple process that can help organizations develop strategies more effectively and efficiently. So it's a process that concisely compares alternative strategic options by applying a disciplined approach to subjectively arrive at a strategic decision. So some of the key points there are it's a process, it's concise, it's a disciplined approach, and it's subjective. Now, I know that most business people, when they hear subjective, they think that that's bad. You know, so for instance, nobody right, that's, wants... That's the chimpanzee choosing one or the other, right? <laughs> well, nobody wants a judge to be subjective in making a decision. They want a judge to be objective, only the facts. And really, when I say subjective, I'm not saying making a decision without facts. What I'm really saying is when I say subjective, is that I'm using the facts to come up with a simple descriptor. And that simple descriptor then is what allows you to make a decision. For instance, almost any time you're trying to decide which market, let's say, to go in, you're going to want to identify how big the market is. What I do is rather than have people make a decision based on, well, this market is... 5 billion, this market is going to be 3 billion, this market is going to be 2 billion, whatever. I basically have them up front say, okay, what is going to be important to us? Basically, before you're doing any analysis, you're saying, you know what, if we got a $2 billion market and we're able to pursue that, that would be great. Do I need it to be five billion? Well, five billion is better, but I, you know, two billion is good. So what I do is I tell them, instead of trying to discriminate between, you know, two and three and four and five, I say, okay, anything over two billion would be a plus. Okay, and what would be a really bad market for me to get in? Well, anything uh, under three hundred thousand is going to be bad. Doesn't matter if it's 200, 300, 250, anything under 300 is bad. Okay, so that's a minus. So what ends up happening is, is that when people are making their decisions, they are looking at pluses and minuses. And and so what you're doing is you're describing the situation, but you're not going into such detail that it makes it hard for people to figure things out. And that's the whole point, is that I believe that since strategy decisions are very different from operational decisions, it's really important in an operational setting to decide whether or not you're going to sell the product for $5 or $7.50. That's important. But when you're looking at something from a strategic standpoint, something that is way out there, that level of detail is unnecessary. And what I found was when we were doing strategy uh, sessions with my big company, we're spending weeks trying to figure out, okay, is it going to be 83% market share? Is it going to be a 79% market share? And we have these debates. 
what a waste of time, okay? So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to the decision efficiently and effectively. And so that's what I do when I'm talking about subjectively making a decision. And and I guess then the lean part is making it efficiently. Well, basically, when you think about it, LSDM is based on lean principles, which means that the process eliminates waste in the development of your strategy. It examines strategy activity differently, and it creates value with less work. So this strategic decision process organizes the traditional business decision model into a more productive methodology. And it does that specifically by designing efficiency into the final three decision steps, which are information procuring, information analysis, and alternative selection. So from my perspective, LSDM is a more productive methodology for choosing between strategies for the company. Talk a little bit about how you apply the model. Well, LSDM is like a 10-step process. So it starts when the company identifies that it has a strategic issue. So for instance, maybe a a new competitor has come in with uh, a technology that has significant advantages over yours. So the next thing that the company needs to do is they need to sit down and think about solutions that can resolve the strategic issue. And um, that usually takes a little bit of time. The solutions that can fix this strategic issue I call strategic alternatives. Now, once you've identified these strategic alternatives, the company needs to develop a list of factors that will be used to analyze the alternatives. I thought it was fascinating in the appendix to your book, you even give people the most common criteria. So it's not like they have to be geniuses thinking up (laughs) what the criteria are. You you kind of you've given them a menu and they can go, yeah, that's relevant. No, this one's not. Right. So the, the factors then are called decision criteria. Now, once the criteria are identified, the team needs to develop a scale or a rubric that facilitates assessing each alternative against all of the criteria. And this is really a very important step. You want to identify how you're going to be making your decision before you collect any facts. And the reason for that is is that you don't want the criteria to be influenced by someone who's already collected the facts and is trying to bias the company towards one decision or another. So basically, pull together the criteria you're going to do and the, and the scale you're going to use to rate it on before the facts. Then you collect the facts, turn the scale and the facts over to everyone on the leadership team. In my opinion, you need to have a team make a strategic decision so that you can bring in all the different disciplines in to look at the situation and make a better decision. And then the leadership team rates each of the criterion against all of the strategic alternatives, and you do it by yourself. When that's done, you compile all the leadership responses, bring the team together, and then you basically try to develop a consensus over how each of the things are rated. Some of these are very easy because everyone will rate uh, something the same, Mm -hmm. but that won't always happen. So what you do is you basically ask the team to explain why um, you rated something, and hopefully by uh, making a bit your business case, you can eventually bring folks on side. 
what I want to do is I want to make sure that if you have some of those thinking quiet people, you want to make sure you pull them out to make statements. Because often, and I think often those people are, are people who make really good conclusions. There's a, a lot of interesting stuff out there about groupthink. And oftentimes the most vocal, the most negative people have a much stronger say in the direction of how the group thinks about something. So I could see between that and the implicit biases that we've talked about, it can be very, very helpful to have someone from the outside facilitate. Right. So basically what ends up happening then is when you agree on the ratings for each of the alternatives, you put this combined result onto one sheet of paper that I call a canvas. And the canvas then kind of rates subjectively all the different alternatives along all the criteria that you think were important. It's just a very simple way to look at your business solution and you basically make your decision as to which is the best strategy based on looking at the canvas. And then, of course, you go ahead and implement that best alternative. Really interesting. So looking back at some of the topics we've covered so far, it's pretty clear that a lot of companies do not a very good job with strategy. Uh, they don't have a very good process, a lot of them, and even the leaders often don't have a lot of confidence in them. And you present them with a very well thought out, easy to follow methodology that will help them. So I'm guessing then that the phone rings off the hook, right? Well, in truth, no. I, I have found that most executives are so focused on the short term that strategy is less of a priority. And I also think that most organizations think they do a pretty good job of doing strategy. And, and quite honestly, it, since the payoff for a good and bad strategy can be years down the road, Often what will happen is someone will make a decision on a strategy and they might not even be with the company by the time the impact actually shows up. So in general, it's uh, difficult to get companies to make the decision. You know, I think I mentioned last week we had someone on talking about leadership. They said the same thing, that people more or less think they're okay at it and frankly, they're, they're too busy. And you and I talked. The fact that my company focuses on partnering and my mentor in the whole partnering field says only really smart companies will care about this. And you say the same thing about strategy. That's actually a little terrifying when you have threads that are as important to a business as partnering effectively with other companies with leadership and development and strategy and companies don't have time for it. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to step back and say, what, what in the world is going on? What do you think it is? You know, I don't think I can give you a, a very good answer to that. If you look at my, my career, I call myself a black hat thinker. Okay. And what that means is, that when, when I'm in a meeting or something and someone talks about something, or let's say they're proposing how to fix a problem, I immediately go to, okay, why won't that work? And that's not bad, okay? Because often I'll think of things that I can then interject 
And then together with my thoughts that stem from why it wouldn't work and other people's thoughts, we come up with a better plan. And, and I would argue that corporations need to have black hat thinkers in order to be successful. Because the black hat thinkers are the ones who think outside the box. And I would argue they're the ones that are going to be more innovative in their approaches and all that kind of stuff. And really, uh, that's the case. But remember, you, you talked about problems with group thinking. I think that in a lot of today's business culture, that people are so busy trying to get along that they're more focused on trying to agree with each other than coming to the right decision. Very so, interesting. I think you've touched on something really, really important and something I'm going to give a lot of thought to. And I think I hope other business owners listening give some thought to that, too. Yeah. When you look at implementing any process on strategy formation, there are two kinds of things that can cause problems. The first is what I call executive tendencies. And the second is group dynamics. And I, I've got a list of four or five things for each of those that cause a problem. But we're still, even with LSDM, you're still working in an organization that has people. And those kinds of things can impact how a company is going to make decisions. These things are going on with or without a process. What I believe is that by implementing a process such as mine, you can actually minimize the impact of these executives' tendencies, or you could minimize the impact of group dynamics in order to come to the best decision. So, and you might go, okay, what do you mean by executive tendency? Well, research shows that most organizations do not actually make optimizing decisions. They make satisficing decisions, which means this is good enough. And the reason for that is that often in coming up with an optimized decision, you might need to collect more data. You may, you may need to spend more time in analysis. And a lot of executives are going, I don't have time for this. So what they do is they kind of collect a little bit of data and they think about it for a little while, maybe bring in some people and they go, you know what, this is good enough. So that would be an example, the, the fact that executives have a tendency to make satisficing decisions. Another thing, and we touched on this a little bit from a group standpoint, I believe that there's a, a tendency to try and avoid conflict mm. among the group. I, I, I agree with that, absolutely. And from my perspective, first of all, I don't want people throwing papers and pens at each other and getting mad and pounding tables. I'm talking about honest discussion that show that you have conflicting views and then making your logical case for why your view is correct and not. And what ends up happening is, is that people are so afraid of having conflict that they will agree on something even if they don't even believe it because they want to avoid conflict. Conflict makes people think deeper come up with new alternatives, come up with more innovation and push companies to get more facts that will make you make better logical decisions. That's what conflict properly managed does. But we're too afraid of conflict. Yeah, well, unfortunately, people that stick out often get whacked in the next restructuring. So, yeah. you know, I think that's factored into some of it. it be, 
interesting to see what's out there about that. So we're we're almost out of time. As I suspected, the hour would fly by. If people are interested in connecting with you or learning more about what your company does or just chatting about strategy and how to do it better, what's the best way to reach you? Sure. The best way to learn more is to go to my website. That's stevegarko.com. So Steve, G-A-R-C as in cat, H-O-W.com. Now, on the homepage, uh, there's a link to a free, no-obligation, 30-minute strategy discussion. But what you can do is you can use that link to just set up a, uh, and schedule a phone conversation. You know, it doesn't have to be 30 minutes, just, you know, to talk about things. Right. Now, the home, homepage also has a free strategic decision assessment survey which companies can use to see if they have a problem with strategy formation. It also contains a link to my book, and then it explains the assistance programs my company can perform. Terrific. And where can they get this book if they're interested? It's available on Amazon. It certainly is. That's where I got mine. So, uh, (laughs) well, we're out of time. Steve, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was really interesting. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, Doris, and and I appreciate you having me on your show. I learned a lot. So that's our show for this week. Thanks to everybody for listening. And again, especially to our guest today, Steve Garko from Foresight Business Consulting. To listen to an on-demand recording podcast of today's show, along with other free information and resources for entrepreneurs, you can go to my Savvy Entrepreneur Show page, which is at lakesradio.org, or to my consulting website, which is globalocityservicesplural.com. Be sure to join us next Saturday. We'll be talking with the owners of a brand new business in Libertyville, Illinois, called The Salt Cave. It's a unique business, and they'll talk about how they decided to create this business and share candidly some of the challenges they faced along the way with trying to get the business set up and operating. So be sure not to miss it. And until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.